Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. We do our best to stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research and the expertise of our guests to help us to arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrated policy solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects, from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Nathan Leaf, one of your hosts for this morning's show, and in the chair next to me is Joe Moravchik. Joe, what do we have in store for our listeners today? Nathan, today we are pleased to welcome back to the show our very first guest from the inaugural broadcast a year ago, Dr. James Densley. On that first program, Dr. Densley offered his knowledge and insights to our listeners in a discussion on mass shootings and gun violence. We invited him back to have a conversation today about gangs and gang violence. Gangs have been a reality of American life since the end of the Revolutionary War. From their obscure roots in the lower east side of New York City in the late 18th century, it is estimated in a 2011 FBI FBI intelligence assessment that now there are more than 33,000 gangs active in the United States with approximately 1.4 million members nationwide. Dr. Densley brings his expertise as a, as a sociologist and a professor of criminal justice at Metropolitan State University to help us understand this growth of gangs and the implications of gang violence for our national and local policymakers. In 2017, Dr. Densley co-founded the Violence Project with Dr. Jillian Peterson of Hamlin University, and together in 2021, they authored the best-selling book and winner of the 2022 Minnesota Book Award, The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. Dr. Densley is a speaker and an author on the subject of criminology with an extensive list of published books, articles, and contributions to major media outlets on a range of public policy issues, including gang violence, criminal networks, policing, mass shootings, and violent extremism. Dr. Densley earned his doctorate in sociology from the University of Oxford. His research examines group processes and dynamics in gangs and compares gangs with other violent social organizations such as hate groups and terrorist cells. He has helped popularize the concept of gang globalization and the role of the global mediascape in the creation and influence of local gang realities. Dr. James Densley, it is our honor to have you back with us for your second appearance on the program. Welcome back to Public Policy This Week. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm just delighted to be back. (laughs) Uh, Nathan and I are in the KYMN studios in the heart of beautiful downtown Northfield, where are you at this morning? Well, I'm at home uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, and the reason for that is because I'm about to jump on a flight later to head to Colorado to collaborate on a research project, believe it or not, uh, looking at gangs. Uh, we're going to be doing a national survey to try to get 
sort of national estimate of gang prevalence and then public opinion on uh, gangs and gang responses. So this is a very timely conversation uh, for, for that line of work. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, exploring that research a bit more. Uh, but before we do, Dr. Densley, um, and d- before we dive into the topic of gangs and gang violence for today's show, I was hoping you could bring us up to date from that conversation you had with Joe and John Olson on our first broadcast of Public Policy this week last year, covering the topic of mass shootings. A year on, we've seen more mass shootings, including recent high-profile events in Cleveland, Texas, and Allen, Texas. What has changed on the policy landscape since that conversation, if anything? And have there been any new developments in your research on gun violence or any trends in mass shootings that we should be aware of? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked the question because uh, it's this vexing, sort of frustrating problem that these mass shootings keep occurring. Um, I will say there's been some progress on the policy level. You might recall last year the federal bipartisan gun safety bill that was passed. And in that bill was uh, money for a range of different interventions to try and tackle this at the local level. And interestingly, uh, one of those was for the uh, passage of extreme risk protection orders, which are are better known as red flag laws. And you might uh, know that uh, here in Minnesota during the last legislative session, they did pass an an extreme risk protection order uh, uh, policy. And so the devil will now be in the details about how that gets implemented on the local level. But that's an example of some of the work that's been going on in this space. Um, And I think as well, when you look at the, the national landscape for this issue, uh, the idea that federal law might take a, an effect here is pretty slim, I think, at the moment. A lot of the action does seem to be more at the local level, at the state level, um, with legislatures trying to do something to address rising gun violence in communities. Um, In our own research, um, one of the exciting things uh, that happened during the legislative session is we received uh, some funding from the state of Minnesota to continue the work that we've been doing uh, around gun violence. And so we've got now a pretty aggressive agenda of projects that we want to be pursuing over the next couple of years to really understand the dynamics of gun violence right here in Minnesota and uh, to hopefully uh, make uh, recommendations that can make lives safer here at the local level. So we're excited to kind of dive into that. Uh, we're doing some work at the moment looking at community homicides and gun violence uh, and then expanding that out from the mass shooting work that we, uh, we're we perhaps best known for. So, uh, so lots going on, um, but still a lot of work to be done. Okay. Uh, shifting gears to today's topic then. My impression of the perception that many Americans share on the issue of gangs and gang violence is that these are uh, distant problems lacking in relevance and direct impact to their lives. It seems many people, particularly those who reside in uh, rural areas, as many of our listeners do, see gang violence as a primarily urban problem. And their perception of the issue is often filtered through the lens of popular media culture. For example, via television shows such as The Sopranos or Sons of Anarchy. What is right about these perceptions? What is wrong about them? And how are we all impacted by gangs and gang violence? Why why should we be concerned with this issue? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's something that researchers and policymakers have grappled with for generations, actually, which is how to um, ensure that the gang issue is not just uh, relevant for those who are living the life of the gang and who are affected directly by gang violence in predominantly urban communities, as you'd mentioned. And of course, with the overlap socioeconomic status with race because of sort of historical and structural reasons as well, gangs tend to cluster in communities that are communities of color. And so what also happens is there's a sort of racial dynamic to the debates around gangs as well, which can, I think, sometimes isolate people from feeling that this is their problem or that they should care about it and so on. But the facts are, the, uh, are really what's most striking. When you look at everyday gun violence, so much of it is connected to sort of gang and group dynamics. And this is what's driving the vast majority of the violence in our communities. And so if we care about reducing gun violence in society, for instance, then we have to care about gangs. We have to care about these groups. And more than that, it's not just the uh, direct impact. It's the wider impact that these groups have as well. So every time there's a shooting or every time there's a gang conflict, this is having an impact on people's property values. It's having an impact on people's um, uh, you know, opportunities to open a business in a community. It's having an impact on the day-to-day -day existence within a school or within a, uh, within a church or within a community. It's affecting people's lives in multi, uh, multiple different ways. And I think that's the bit that often gets missed is that at the end of the day, gang members are human beings. And so they have all the same wants and needs and desires that everybody else does. And if we understand them as those human beings that they are, then we all can be part of that solution to addressing how do we get people out of gangs and, and feeling that we have some, some, some skin of the game and we can actually do something about this. Now, you mentioned the media perception of, of gangs. That's an important piece because... On the one hand, the media gets some things right, but on the other hand, it gets a lot of things wrong and it sensationalizes certain aspects of the groups. I think the most important thing to realize is in the TV and the, and the movie sh and movies and the shows that you watch, gang life is often portrayed as ultra-violent and ultra-criminal and that there's always something going on. And so it's a very exciting, dynamic, but scary and ruthless and violent life. The truth of the reality of gang life is, yes, it's violent and yes, it's criminal. But the vast majority of time, people are just sort of living their lives and hanging out and not doing very much. And the truth matter is gang life is quite boring, uh, just like most of our lives usually are. And so, again, it comes back to that idea of recognizing gang members are human beings, just like the rest of us. So their parents, their brothers, their siblings, they, they, they spend time with their grandparents. They, they go to the grocery store. They go shopping. They do all the things that we do, too. But there is also this sort of uh, violent and criminal undercurrent to the activities of the group, which makes them a concern for us. But also, I think, moves us away from the sensationalism of some of the things that you see in the media portrayals of the gangs, where it's 
non-stop 24 hours a day seven days a week crime and violence and action uh, the truth is that's not really the case dr james densley is our guest on kymn we mentioned in the introduction that u.s gangs were founded in the lower east side of new york city in the 1700s can you give us a brief synopsis of the history and evolution of gang culture in the united states since that time and perhaps establish for our audience what the definition of a gang is. Oh, you see, how long have we got? Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, but you're asking a question. True. The reason I say that is because you're asking a question that has actually stumped gang researchers for hundreds of years, which is, is there a unified definition of gangs that we can all truly embrace? And I think the consensus definition of a gang is that it's a relatively durable group. So it can't just be a group that pops up one day and has gone the next. There has to be some sort of sustainability with it. Um, the, the group tends to be youthful. Uh, gangs usually are, um, are, are younger in age, they're gang members, and that their activities tend to be very street-orientated. They're very public. Um, that the activity uh, usually is done in public spaces. And that might include, by the way, social media and the Internet as a public space. Um, and, of course, that the identity of the group is somehow connected to crime. Because if it didn't have that aspect of it, well, that definition would then apply to pretty much any social group. We could be talking about the Boy Scouts. We could be talking about uh, a church group. The thing that I think most people are interested in with gangs is that they're, they are involved in crime and violence. And so that really is a central part of their identity and a central part of what makes a gang a gang. Now, your question about the evolution over time, I think, is really interesting um, gangs really formed in sort of ethnic enclaves and immigrant communities uh, in the uh, 1800s. And for a long time, they were really understood as being groups that would def uh, defend turf and provide uh, status and belonging for groups that have been marginalized and ostracized in conventional society. And if you couldn't get an inroad into the legitimate economy, you couldn't get a real job then you needed a way to try and make some money illegally. Mm -hmm. And so maybe the gang was a route for doing that. And that's really how they kind of started off. You mentioned the Lower East Side of New York. In a previous life, I was a middle school special education teacher, and I taught in the Lower East Side of New York. So, um, and of course, this is hundreds of years removed from the gangs of New York, uh, the famous Martin Scorsese movie. But that was, of course, based on a book written in 1927 that really documented these uh, these early gangs. But um, gangs have evolved because our society has evolved. And I think it's uh, a truism to say that um, we are not just... Uh, uh, who we are, uh, but it's about when we are in time that shapes the things that we do. And that is really true, I think, of the gangs. Gangs today are very much shaped by the dynamics of access to firearms. Um, they are shaped by access to social media. And they are shaped by the criminal justice system around them, mass incarceration and policing and other factors. 
all these things feed into what we see today as the gang, which is, I think, very different from what the gang was originally. Even if the essence of the gang has remained the same, it's still a group for camaraderie and belonging and maybe some um, um, access to to money and, and other means. But everything around it has changed. And so the gang itself has had to change with the times. Well, it's it's clear from that history that gangs are not a monolith, but rather very diverse and sophisticated. Can you tell us more about the different types of gangs and their goals, their organizing structures and their operations? Yeah. And so this is another one that's, I think, fascinating, because if you think about gangs as groups, primarily, that's what they are. They're groups, but they exist on a spectrum. So you have just sort of uh, loose affiliated cliques and social groups, peer groups, which lack any real organizing structure. They're kind of fluid networks. People pass in and out of them. They come and go. Um, a lot of the gangs that we see today actually have that aspect to them. They're not particularly structured or well-organized, but they're very um, nebulous almost in, in the way that they operate. But you also get then beyond that gangs which become a little bit more structured and organized, that they might have uh, roles and responsibilities. They might have goals uh, for the group and they might have leadership. Uh, in the group as well. And once a gang starts to sort of evolve beyond that level, you start to see these um, similarities and differences with your regular old street gang and then what you might think of as being an organized crime group. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a good distinction here between um, crime that is organized versus organized crime. So, if the three of us right here decide we're going to get together and we're going to rob a bank, that might be crime that is organized. You know, we might have planned it and we might have got together and figured it out, but that doesn't make us an organized crime group. An organized crime group is much more connected around having a sort of a structure and a goal orientation and everything else. But it also is really aspiring to provide illegal goods and services. And a gang can go from being a very dysfunctional, fluid group to something that's a little bit more organized. But it takes time and it takes opportunity, I think, to get it there. And of course, within all these are the, all the different gradations that you know, right? The different gang factions, the Bloods, the Crips, the Gangster Disciples, and so on. The different colors that groups wear, the different neighborhood turf that they represent, uh, the different histories, the different cultures, black gangs versus Latin gangs versus Asian gangs, and, and the list goes on. And so there's a lot of ways of describing gangs, but they don't necessarily define them. But it does uh, make for a very uh, interesting patchwork of gang activity uh, across communities uh, and across the world. I think we have a lot of audience members who are just hearing about gangs for the first time, other than what they've heard on the news occasionally. But what types of illegal activities are gangs involved in? And then how prevalent are things like drug trafficking and prostitution? 
to some extent it depends on the gang but i think the evidence when you look at it would suggest that quite a lot of um violent crime in the united states is driven by group or gang dynamics and there is a cycle of violence that is retaliatory in nature and is also driven by the kind of culture and expectations of these groups that really help us understand what is going on in our communities and so what i mean by that is there are codes of the street if you will that if somebody insults you you have to take charge and ensure that you're not disrespected and so this can result in cycles of retaliatory violence and shootings that that spread um if if i come at you you're going to have to come back on me and if you come back on me then my crew is going to have to come back to you and before you know it you're locked in a sort of perpetual cycle of violence and so that's something that we see a lot in communities across the united states and that and that cr- cuts across and then beyond the sort of status of the gang and how that drives violence you have economic activity and how that might drive criminal behavior so there's not a lot of money to be made from just violence unless of course you're a protection racket like a mafia group and then maybe there is but when you think about gangs really the economic aspects are usually in the areas of drug trafficking prostitution and other crimes where there is a market and where there is money to be made and so i think when we think about the role of the gang in society we can look at it in terms of these retaliatory violent actions and how they transform and shape communities but also the economic activity of the gang and how things like drug trafficking drug sales whether on a on a local level or on a community level or and so on uh, are also uh, driven by that in the end of the day if a group aspires to be a provider of illegal goods and services and if those goods and services are things like drugs guns women then that starts to move that group more toward becoming an organized crime gang mm-hmm. and it shapes more the dynamics of the group because in order to be successful in those operations you have to be a little bit more savvy a little bit more organized because of course that's going to come with a lot of police scrutiny and it changes i think how we think about those groups uh, going forward that's interesting a little bit later we're going to talk about racketeering um you mentioned bloods crips gangster disciples among others can you talk about trends in gang membership and operations are particular types of gangs becoming more per- more pervasive and powerful in the United States while others are declining in influence? Yeah, I think um, during the 80s and 1990s, there was often a lot of talk around groups like the Bloods, the Crips, the Gangster Disciples, so on. Um, these kind of organized super gangs, they were sort of gang factions 
under which many other cliques and groups would organize and they would claim some sort of affiliation to this kind of umbrella organization, if you will. Over time, there seems to be less of that type of an influence, partly because some of those larger gang factions and organizations have disbanded. Many of the leadership have wound up in jail and so on. Um, and increasingly now, gangs feel a little bit more fluid, uh, less organized. It's more difficult to sort of name names about which gang is affiliated with which uh, organization and so on. Um, and I think that's also a byproduct of, of the modern world, which is to say that you can create whatever you want in the modern world. You know, you, uh, your identity is, is whatever you want it to be. And so there's an element of young people claiming their own space, claiming their own identity, not feeling beholden to the old gang structures and being able to carve out their own niche for themselves. So some of those old uh, labels that we would place on gangs are perhaps not as relevant today as they were a generation or two ago. But they do still loom large, I think, in the minds of the American people when they think about what is a gang and how to define it. And they also still influence the ways in which gangs represent themselves in public, because there's an element of if you want your gang to look like a gang, you have to conform with what the people want and what the people expect from a gang. And so there's a lot of sort of copycatting and mimicry that goes on. Uh, dressing in colors, uh, posing with certain affiliations and so on to kind of fulfill those expectations of what gang, me gang membership looks like in the public domain. Dr. Densley, before we get into more details and specifics of your research, I'd like to explore for a bit the root causes of gang involvement and gang violence. What are some of the main factors that drive the growth and influence of gangs? Both in my own work and in the work of other uh, experts in this area, there's a consistent through line that people join gangs as a result of certain push and pull factors. So there are some things that are pushing people into gangs, which are usually negative things within their communities or within their home life or within their school life and, and so on. So you could be pushed into a gang because of uh, crime and violence within a community. And the gang pulls you in because they are offering you a chance at protection. So you feel unsafe in your community. That's what's pushing you. And then the gang turns around and says, well, we can protect you. And they pull you in. Similarly, if there's a lack of economic opportunity or if you don't feel like you're doing well in school, there's an absence of jobs, unemployment, and so on. That's, these are pushes which are pulling you then, the gang says, we can provide you with a job. We can make money illegally, more money than you could ever make in the legal uh, economy. So that becomes another driver for people to join these groups. And I think as well to think about that people are always searching for a for belonging, for a sense of identity, and for a sense of purpose. 
And for those individuals who don't feel like they have that in conventional means through athletic teams or through their school or, or through their community and home life, the gang can provide it for them. So very consistently, these themes of protection, money, status, and belonging are really the driving factors for why people join gangs. And then one other piece about this, which is all connected to what I've just mentioned, is there is an intergenerational continuity in gangs. And what I mean by that is that gangs are passed down through the family. So if you yourself have family members, uh, siblings, cousins, uncles, fathers, in some communities, you might be three or four generations deep in gang membership. You might have grandparents, parents, siblings, older siblings, and now yourself, um, and then you're having your own children and they too are joining the gang. You you look at this um, as a, a rite of passage and a way of life in certain communities, um, something that is uh, around your own personal and family identity. So those consistently are a lot of the reasons why people join gangs. But I think it's important just to state for your listeners that Gang membership is not a, uh, um, a lifelong sentence, so to speak. Many people think that once you join a gang, you can never get out. What the academic research actually shows is that most people get out of gangs within about two or three years. It's, it's a very short-lived experience. Many people who join, they leave. And that's largely because they realize that everything that the gang is selling them, protection, money, status, and so on, family, it's a bill of goods. It's it. They never actually provide what they say they're going to provide. And over time, people get disillusioned with gang life and the violence of the gang life, the, uh, the, the contradictions of gang life, and they eventually seek a way out. And for our listeners, this is Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Nathan Leaf, and my co-host Joe Moravchik and I are talking with Dr. James Densley about gangs and gang violence. Let's explore some of the specifics of your work on gangs, beginning with your first book, which was published in 2013 entitled How Gangs Work and Ethnography of Youth Violence. You mentioned in the introductory pages of the book that this work was heavily influenced by the outbreak of gang violence in the UK in 2011. But can you tell our listeners more about why you believe this book needed to be written and about the impact this book has had on the field of criminology? Yeah, in some cases, it's a case with any career of being maybe the right place at the right time. Um, so for your listeners, I'm originally from the United Kingdom, um, and in the UK, in the early 2000s and the mid-2000s, there was quite a vigorous debate about whether or not gangs even existed in the UK. People had pointed to groups that sort of looked like gangs, felt like gangs, might have been gangs, but people were very reluctant to use the G word. And I think that was largely because they'd seen the negative consequences of doing so in the United States. There's a lot of 
uh, bad public policy around uh, gang suppression um, that had left people really concerned about what would happen if Britain, uh, you know, followed the American path with gangs. So I started doing field work in about 2007 in London, which was a time that this debate was really starting to heat up because there had been a a number of uh, fatal stabbings of teenage boys primarily, um, many of which seemed to be gang-related. And so I spent over two years embedded um, with gangs in London. I um, interviewed gang members. I went on ride-alongs with police. I spent times in community uh, where gangs were an issue. I, I basically hung out on street corners with drug dealers for about two years seeing what they do and how they do it. Um, for some reason, Oxford University gave me a PhD for doing that. Um, I still think they might have made a mistake. But, um, but that was the, the, uh, the work that I was engaged in. Now, I defended that PhD dissertation in the summer of 2011. And about... Six to eight weeks after that, so I'm now a new, newly minted PhD. I'm Dr. Densley for the first time. And so for the first time in my life, someone might listen to me um, on this issue. Um, there were um, riots that broke out across the UK, but particularly in London. And the riots were sparked, actually, by um, uh, a police-involved um, uh, killing of a young uh, black man that resulted in protests which also were really tied to the austerity measures in the UK, a lot of just disgruntled British citizens. If you cast your mind back to the recession, global recession, the financial crisis that followed the collapse of Lehman Brothers and uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and and the, the state of the global economy back in 2008, 9, 10, there was a lot of just angry sentiment in the UK at that time. Mm-hmm. And then the straw that broke the camel's back was this uh, death in police custody. The people came out into the streets with a series of protests that evolved into rioting, looting, arson, and in some cases, uh, people lost their lives during those protests. Very similar to a lot of the protests that we saw in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, for instance. And the British government came out and said that it was gangs who were responsible for the riots. And they said that they were launching, so Prime Minister David Cameron at the time said, and I quote, a concerted all-out war on gangs and gang culture, end quote. And at the time, I had just finished two, three years of hanging out with gang members in London, interviewing them, understanding how gangs work and everything else, and at that time was probably the most knowledgeable person in the UK about gangs in London. And then all of a sudden, the Prime Minister is the one saying, well, the gang started the riots and we're going to crack down on them. And so I thought, 
clearly nobody in government actually has ever talked to a gang member or knows what they're doing or how they're doing it. This might be an opportunity to um, share what I found with the world, so to speak. And I think on the back of all that contact is how I got my first book deal, was able to turn my PhD dissertation into a book. And to really be a bit more centered around, let's really understand the dynamics of these groups and who the people are involved in them, to recognize that the gangs didn't have the capacity or the capability or even the interest to organize riots on scales that we saw in the UK. They weren't the driving factor behind this. The, the driving factor was all the socioeconomic context and everything else. And that if we were just going to... Uh, go to war against these groups, we were going to lose because that had been tried in other contexts, particularly in the United States, and had not been a successful public policy. And so it was a an interesting time to be doing this work that overnight all of a sudden becomes relevant. Because at the time, there was this academic debate of, well, what you're doing is not relevant because no one cares about gangs. They don't even exist. Were, and they were in denial. And then fast forward two months later, and it was, well, now the prime minister's saying that gangs are the biggest problem in the country. So how did you go from zero to 60 in, in nothing, if you know what I mean? And then I felt like, well, maybe my voice could be important in this space because I've been doing the work about this issue that no one else has been doing. And that's really how it all began. Can you very briefly... Uh, talk more about that specific approach to research. It's very unique because I think so often people have this conception of academia as this ivory tower exercise where you're just sitting at your desk going through reports. Here you are on the streets actually embedding yourself. How did you do that? You quote in, in, in the book that uh, a pastor advised you, if you want to know gangs, you've got to know every hairdresser, every barber, every DJ. So did you just walk into the barbershop on the street and say, hey, tell me about your local gang members? How do you do that? You know what? You know what's quite funny is I actually did. Uh, and in some cases got laughed out of the barbershop. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I was very conscious of the fact, you know, that I was... I was young at the time. I was in my 20s. Um, I was a little bit green in terms of my research experience and being an academic and everything else. But I really treated this around the idea that you can never really understand something until, you know, as they say in, in To Kill a Mockingbird, until you've walked in somebody's shoes, right? And so I really wanted to get as, as in-depth uh, as I possibly could doing this research. So what I really did is I tried to tap as many networks as possible, whether it was police officers, social workers, teachers, outreach workers, whether it was um, ex-gang members, to ask them to introduce me to the people that they knew, to vouch for me that I wasn't some sort of undercover cop that was going to get them in trouble, but I was genuinely just a researcher that was interested in exploring people's lives. And then I was just persistent. You know, I would show up and on some days people would look at me and be like, what's he doing here? And no one would talk to me. Um, but then I would just keep showing up and keep showing up again and again and again. And eventually people were like, okay, we'll ask, we'll, we'll ask his questions. We'll answer his questions now. 
And um, in some communities, I got to a point where I, I'd, I'd made such good contacts with these folks. I was eating dinner in their houses. I was meeting their parents. I was spending time um, going to community events with them. In addition to observing the dynamics of the gang and what it was doing. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I was ever exposed to anything that was truly um, problematic. But uh, and I was very careful sort of ethically around what could be disclosed and what couldn't and so on. But I felt by the end of that work, which was over sort of two years of treating it as a full time job, by the way. I mean, I was I was basically just out 40, 50 hours a week, just hanging out um, and making notes. I felt I had a pretty good grip on what was going on. And I uh, developed enough relationships where I was able to interview. The, the book is actually nearly 200 people were interviewed in the course of that research. Um, it's uh, over 60 of them were uh, self-nominated as being gang members. And then in addition, I interviewed a lot of community members and police officers and others that could add additional context to that work. It was a pretty extensive study um, in the end. In our introduction for the program today, we mentioned a concept that you have researched called gang localization. In 2018, you co-authored a paper on the subject with the heading, How the Global Mediascape Creates and Shapes Local Realities. Can you elaborate on what is meant by gang localization and explain how this phenomenon is important to our understanding of gang violence? You know, it's funny, even hearing you uh, pitch the question, it's like, and here's the academic with, with the jargon, right? That the general public is thinking, what, what is he talking about? So glocal is just a, a way of merging together two words, global and local. And it's a recognition the, the global society that we live in with 24-hour media, social media, the internet, airplane travel, all the ways in which we are exposed to a global society doesn't mean that everywhere is completely identical. So the experience of being in a global world is still lived at the local level. And that there are local variations on global processes. So what does this mean in terms of the gang? Well, we had gangs in London that identified as being affiliated with famous gangs from the United States. But of course, no one from the U.S. had actually showed up as a recruiting agent. You know, they weren't handing out business cards and saying, great, join the Crips, because here we are. They had borrowed the colors, the symbols, and the stories of these groups because they'd learned about them through media and social media and the internet. And so it was an idea around this global media scape, meaning the media landscape that we now exist in, where everything is accessible all the time, and how that fed into the evolution of these groups at the local level. And so I've looked at this with colleagues, not just in the UK, but also in other countries throughout Europe, how there are gang groupings in the Netherlands and in Belgium and in, and in the United Kingdom that genuinely claim these types of affinities and affiliations with American gangs, but they don't actually have any real physical contact with them. It's all influence and mimicry 
and um, and sort of camaraderie that has been built um, because they genuinely see themselves in these other groups. And I think that's what's fascinating about the gang is the way that these global brands, if you will, um, spread, but they always have a like local flavor to them. And that's because of the context in the UK or in the Netherlands or in Belgium or wherever you are is, of course, very different from living in Los Angeles or Chicago or New York. And, and so that's really what the work is about. Can you tie that into uh, our local reality here in Minnesota? And I'm thinking specifically about the press conference hosted by the Department of Justice a couple of months ago, on May 4th, actually, in which Andrew Luger, the U.S. attorney for the District of Minnesota, announced the arrest and indictment of 45 members and associates from two uh, Minneapolis, violent Minneapolis street games. Who are those gangs and how can our listeners understand this idea of gang localization at work in, in these specific cases? Yeah. So what's interesting about these particular cases is they're really applying, uh, the RICO or, or, uh, racketeering uh, approach to dismantling the group. And so there's this idea of, if you are all in the collective together, then everybody is responsible for the actions of the group. And so it's a criminal conspiracy framework for trying to dismantle not just the gang on the individual level, but actually at the collective level. And this is a strategy that has been applied in other contexts too. So to answer that question about the globalization of this, it's a strategy that really began in the United States, particularly in California. It's also been used in Chicago. But then in the United Kingdom, they also used what was called joint enterprise law to, for the same reason. It was not only is one person responsible for these actions, but if you are affiliated with that person in a gang, then everybody is responsible. And now we have means to indict everybody. And so that's the same sort of logic that's now being used to apply to these gangs here in Minneapolis, which is to say that even if one person pulls the trigger, if you knew that they were going to pull the trigger, and if you were in a group that endorses pulling the trigger, and if you are somehow connected to those who were responsible for pulling the trigger, now we have means to go after all of you. And in some ways, it is a very effective strategy because it sends a very clear message that this type of violence won't be tolerated. But there are also civil liberties concerns about to what extent can the actions of one uh, be uh, then used to uh, criminalize the many. And so it's a very controversial approach. But it is an approach that has been used in now quite a few jurisdictions um, and is becoming increasingly uh, popular among, um, among uh, district attorneys, county attorneys, and so on in their strategy for, for tackling gangs. You touched a little bit about, uh, about promotion and recruitment. What role does social media play in glamorization of gangs and then also threats and intimidation by gangs. Yeah, that's been a big 
part of my work. Um, you know, when I first started doing the research on gangs 15 years ago now, social media was a relatively novel and new thing. But I started to realize very quickly that it was a very effective means for gangs to promote what they were doing. And not only that, on an individual level, it was a way to validate that the claims that you were making were real. Because you could say that you were the toughest guy on the block, but until someone showed the proof that you were, no one would believe it. So that's why now, whenever a fight breaks out, everybody films it. Because there's an idea of you want to prove that it really happened, but also there's some sort of clout and credibility and status associated with being uh, caught on camera doing the things that you're doing. So social media has actually become a tool for the escalation of gang conflict, but in some cases the de-escalation of gang conflict. Mm. You know, you might not necessarily need to fight on the streets if you can just disrespect somebody in a rap video and post it online. But sometimes if you disrespect somebody in a rap video and post it online, that might mean you get shot on the streets because that person takes offense to what you said online. So we are recognizing now that the world of the gang, just like for all of us, by the way, who are not in gangs, that you have your online life and you have your offline life. And the two are not mutually exclusive, but they are heavily intertwined with one another. And so when you understand gang life now, it's not just about what occurs on the streets. It's also what occurs on social media and how that feeds the action of the street, but also how the street feeds what's going on on social media and vice versa. And it's one big sort of echo chamber in many ways, which uh, is part of the ecosystem of these groups now. Dr. Densley. Minnesota just became the 23rd state to legalize the recreational use of cannabis. Colorado and Washington were the first to do it in 2012. Is there any data yet to suggest that the ongoing decriminalization of cannabis and marijuana, which is a product of cannabis, across the United States is having an impact either way on gang membership or gang violence? There was always this concern that... The reason why um, gangs get involved in drug sales is because whenever you prohibit something, it creates an illegal market for it. Mm -hmm. And there's always going to be somebody that wants to step into that market to capitalize and make money. And this is the classic prohibition in the United States in the 1920s, which is responsible for the rise of organized crime. Um, all the stories of Al Capone and bootlegging and everything else. I mean, we know those dynamics and they play out in different economies and in different uh, contexts. And, and this one would be, of course, uh, illegal drugs and specifically marijuana. So one of the arguments was if we legalize marijuana, this is no longer going to be a cash crop and a product for the gangs to market and make money. And it will actually uh, reduce the likelihood of gangs getting involved uh, in this type of behavior. I think there's two uh, unanswered questions about how this plays out. The data are just not particularly clear at the moment, which is to say, does this just displace activity so that gangs move out of the market of marijuana and go into other 
drug markets because they become more lucrative. And we've seen with the rise of fentanyl and synthetic opioids, the opioid crisis in our country, that is there an issue now that uh, the cartels in Mexico, for instance, uh, using fentanyl much more than they're using uh, marijuana and cannabis to make money and how that plays out in the United States, because the United States is the primary market for the use of those drugs. And uh, the gangs are almost the shop floor of the drug distribution business. This is where the sales are made. So there's a question around, does this just uh, diversify and displace some of the activity of the gang? Or does it um, create opportunities to actually get people out of gang life and move more into legitimate business? And that, in some sense, could be actually a positive from this. So there's a lot of questions around how is this implemented on the local level in terms of its taxation, its uh, licensing, its distribution, and so on, for what impact that is going to have on illegal uh, networks and on uh, the illegal distribution of drugs, which I think at this time are still a little bit unanswered. But um, I think there's optimism that this could be a a big positive for getting uh, the market away from the gangs, but also um, there might be some some negatives and some unintended consequences as well. And so I think it's actually a real fascinating area ripe for research. And Minnesota could be a place to to sort of do some of that work to look at what happens when these laws are passed uh, going forward. Yeah, for sure. This is Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and 95.1 FM, broadcasting from Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Joe Moravchik, and alongside is my co-host, Nathan Leaf. Rich Larson is on the radio board. We are fortunate to have with us Dr. James Densley to discuss gangs and gang violence. Dr. Densley, I want to use the last segment of our time to talk about policy options and outcomes. And perhaps a good foundation for that discussion would be to talk a little bit about your recent book that you co-authored with Scott Decker and David Pyros. Is that Pyrus, Pyrus, entitled On Gangs, uh, which was published last year. This is a very meaty, uh, comprehensive work covering all aspects of gangs, some of which we've already touched on. But I want to focus specifically on chapters 13 and 14, which address legislative efforts. What seems to work and what clearly doesn't work? Tell us about the research and finding in these chapters. Yeah, so what we try to do with this book is to really do a comprehensive survey of kind of everything we know about gangs uh, over the last 100 plus years. And we do focus quite a lot of attention on gang responses. And as you mentioned, there have been several approaches to try and address the gang issue in the United States. And um, then there's questions of, well, does it work? So for instance, um, there have been anti-gang legislation which criminalizes gang membership so just by being a member of a gang there might be sentencing enhancements uh if you are caught in the commission of a crime the gang membership can tack additional time onto your sentence simply by virtue of being a member of the group or there are the rico type statutes that i mentioned earlier where the criminal conspiracy of being involved in the group is also a means of getting additional time added on to a sentence. 
We've also looked at civil injunctions. So being able to restrict the movement and the space of the gang. So for instance, if you're in a gang, there might be some sort of civil uh, way of saying you can no longer associate in a particular neighborhood or with certain people or use social media or uh, do certain activities because of the risk that this might have going forward. And then there are um, just your traditional sort of suppression strategies with gangs uh, where you just sort of uh, crack down on gang activity, arrest gang members and so on. I guess what we would say from our research is that the jury really is out on what works. And partly that's because we just haven't done enough good work evaluating the strategies that address gangs and gang behavior. Um, we, we do a lot of these things because they feel like the right thing to do and that the public is crying out for a response on these issues. But we often don't evaluate whether or not they're actually having the intended consequences and successes. What I will say is that where the most promise lies are in truly integrated strategies which apply a law enforcement, but also a community-based response to violence. Where you have those two things working hand in hand, incentivizing nonviolence, but also punishing violence when people fall foul of the law, I think is where you tend to have the best outcomes. So it's not a problem that you can just outright criminalize your way out of. There has to be true alternatives for those individuals involved in gangs working with community-based organizations on interventions that can have the types of impact that you, you're, you're looking for. When you have those two things working well, side by side, that's where you tend to see the best results. So it's, it's a more integrated response seems to be the most successful. If you just do one without the other, uh, you often find that you don't get the results that you're looking for. And instead, what ends up happening is you get a vacuum where a gang is removed, but another gang just moves in and fills the vacuum because you haven't taken the steps to prevent that next generation from following suit. Dr. Densley, you've mentioned RICO, which is the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act of 1970. Do you have a perspective on its effectiveness as a policy strategy? The evidence at the moment is still a little bit mixed. Um, what people have often found when it is used against gangs is exactly what I just mentioned, which is it's very effective at dismantling the group that you're directly targeting because that's what it's designed to do. Yeah. It, not, it doesn't just focus on the key players of the group. It has the potential to take out everybody in the group if they're connected. The problem is then what happens in the interim when those individuals are no longer in the equation. And what we found in cities like Chicago, for instance, is that fragmentation of gang structures results in a splintering of groups and then a vying for supremacy where other groups are trying to fill the void and fill the gap where that group once existed. And so it's not a panacea to gang violence and gang activity, period it can have a very quick impact and can be uh, result in immediate declines in violence. But then over time, what you find is that other groups start to move in to fill the void. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's a good lesson for us to be thinking about ensuring that the strategies are multifaceted again, that yes, you use something like Rico to take out the immediate problem of a group, but then there has to be a strategy of how are we going to uplift and build community to ensure that other people aren't thinking, well, now there's a gaping hole in the criminal economy and I want to fill it. Um, if you can provide viable alternatives so that that doesn't happen, then you've got a comprehensive approach to gangs, which I think can be really effective. So this issue of prevention versus deterrence is just persistent in all discussions of all areas of crime. And you mentioned it specifically in uh, your interview on the show last year about mass shootings. <clears throat> when you explained how reinforcing schools and arming school personnel with both training and weapons might not be as effective a deterrent as one would think. How is the dynamic different for gangs? And can you expand more on the challenge of finding balance between preventative policies and deterrent policies as we seek solutions to the problem of gang violence? Yeah, that's a great question because the research really tells us that in order to get people out of the gang life, you've got to meet them where they're at. And what I mean by that is that people do become, as I mentioned previously, uh, very disenchanted with the gang life. It, it's, it's not what it was billed to be. It's not what it's lived up to be. And it's really about capturing people when that mindset is in place to provide them with the opportunities to pull them out of that life at that moment. So it's where the, the pushes out of the gangs, just like the things that push them in, need to be met with the pulls that get them out, just like the gang pulled them in originally. So I'll give an example. There are ex uh, work that goes on across the country, across the world, where there are hospital-based interventions for gangs. So if you have been a victim of violence and you're in the emergency room and a surgeon is putting you back together again because you've been shot, once that surgery has been a success, that's the moment where an outreach worker, a social worker, and a team can sit down and say, look, this gang life isn't working out very well for you. You nearly died. But now you're here, we can provide you with what you need to get you out of this gang life. And whether that is tattoo removal or education or employment or training or new housing, whatever it is to help you, that's what we're going to do. So that's an example of meeting someone exactly where they're at. Similarly, with these deterrent structures, there's this idea of, uh, the carrot and the stick. And the deterrence is usually the stick. You're usually saying, don't do this, because if you do it, there will be serious consequences. And that those consequences usually are you're going to go to prison. But at the same time, you can incentivize the don't do this part with the carrot, which is to say, if you don't you know, shoot somebody or commit a crime or, or, you know, hang out with your gang members or whatever it is, we are going to incentivize that behavior with some sort of reward. So there might be, again, education, employment, training, uh, some sort of support within a community. 
to help transition you out of that lifestyle, then you start to see that that deterrence becomes a little bit more uh, tangible for the individual. It, it's like with a child. You, you tell them not to do something, well, they're just going to keep doing it. But if you tell them, don't do it, but if you don't do it, I'm also going to reward you with things, then that calculus changes. So I think the balance has to be struck between to what extent are we uh, deterring certain behaviors within groups, but also to what extent are we incentivizing positive pro-social behaviors with individuals as well. And wrapped around all of that is a community and public health approach to just incentivizing uh, prevention in general. So how can we educate more people about the ills of the gang? How can we provide them with alternatives that don't feel the need to join the gang because they feel protected, they feel heard and belong to a community uh, where the gang no longer becomes uh, an option? And, uh, and I think when we think about comprehensive approaches to gangs and gang violence, that's really what it looks like. It's prevention, intervention and enforcement all operating at the same time and not in silos, but collaboratively to get to the optimal outcomes. And some communities have been very, very good and successful doing this. And some have struggled and have only focused on the enforcement or only focused on the intervention, but they haven't done all of it collaboratively. And I think that's where you've got to get the balance right. Dr. Densley, we are winding down the program and we'd like to give you the final word. What didn't we ask that we should have asked about gang violence and the associated public policy challenges and opportunities? I think the only thing I would add is that how we began this conversation was that gangs are often portrayed as being this, uh, it's, it's them, not us mentality, or these are issues that are only relevant in certain communities at certain times for certain populations. But if you think about the scheme of violence and crime in our society, uh, the spectrum that exists there, gangs are responsible for a much greater proportion of everyday gun violence, for instance, than the mass shootings that you hear about in the news or than the uh, accidental shootings that you hear about in the news or, or, the, or the domestic uh, violence that you might hear about in the news. Gang-related shootings are a driving factor of some of the major social problems we have in a society. And if we ignore it and don't recognize it as such, then we're missing a major, major part of the puzzle when you think about how do you solve these vexing social problems. And so I would just urge listeners to um, really be focused on the, on the different uh, types of violence in our society and recognize that gang violence uh, continues to be a challenge and something that we should be focused on from a, from a prevention standpoint. And finally, Dr. Densley, where can our listeners go to learn more about your work on the subjects of both gangs and mass shootings and our options for crafting meaningful policy to address these issues? Well, I teach classes about this at Metro State University, and so you, uh, your listeners can certainly find me there. And then uh, I have a website, jamesdensley.com, uh, which has all my research uh, and links to all of that. 
And then, of course, our work uh, at the Violence Project, which is theviolenceproject.org. Well, this has been another great, informative conversation, but unfortunately, we've reached the end of our program. Dr. James Densley, thank you so much for joining us again on Public Policy This Week. Joe and I want to thank you for the conversation and for your insights this morning. Yes, thank you, Dr. Densley. It was our honor. Great to speak with you again on your important work. And It's that been w- a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And that will conclude this edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. I'm Joe Moravchik, and my co-host today has been Nathan Leaf. Don't forget to join us next week when we discuss the ecological health of the Great Lakes. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities, staying away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. Thank you for joining us today for Public Policy This Week. We'll be here again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.